Let us be reminded of all God's goodness, all his glory being poured out amongst us now. God, we love you. We love you for all that you are, all that you've done. God, we are hungry, hungry for more of you. So God, pour yourself out. Pour out your kingdom. More and more we pray. One of Jesus' shortest parables, he'd say, the kingdom of heaven is like this treasure that a man discovered in a field. When he discovered it, he went away and he sold everything he had so he could purchase this. Jesus, this is... He is our great treasure. He is the, the pearl of great price that's worth selling everything else to take hold of him. He say narrow is the way that leads to life. Narrow indeed. Jesus is the only way. That is the arrogant claim of Christianity, that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only thing that is going to fix things. Jesus is the only thing that is going to satisfy. Jesus is both the narrow gate and the way that leads to life in him. This is, this is the treasure that we have sold all else to pursue. Daily, we lay down everything else. Say, Jesus, everything else pales into insignificance compared to you. We love you, Lord. God, continue to lead us in your ways. Continue to lead us in your ways that we may gaze upon your beauty more and more. God, you are so wonderful. You are so beautiful. You are so mighty and glorious. You're beyond our comprehension. You don't even allow us to gaze at you fully but God by your grace by your mercy under your protection may we see just a little glimpse more of you we've tasted just the smallest morsel and it has transformed our life it has satisfied us beyond anything else God may we taste and see more of you more of you God yeah birth within us just ever increasing measures of a godly greediness give us an appetite for you we talked a bit about we've sensed God wanting to birth something I feel in particular for, for some of us here God is desiring to birth in you a greater degree of love and compassion for those who it has been difficult to love. I don't know what that is. Family member, neighbors, all the above, work colleagues. The miracle God wants to pour out on you is that he's giving you the capacity to love more and more beyond your own strength, beyond your own means. Work in us. Take on that. Increase.
increase our capacity for love, increase our capacity for compassion. As we get to gaze face to face with you, So the reading today is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After Jesus had, Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. I just want to start by just saying a big thank you to everybody for seeking the Lord so wholeheartedly during our time of prayer and fasting. Um, I think you know we didn't crack the whip on this, but it's just been amazing to Lou and I to just see how people have really given themselves to the Lord and sought him during this time. So I just want to say thank you. It's just humbling to journey with people who are so committed to the Lord. So uh, just to honor you for that. Let's pray. Uh, let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you are here. Pray that any of my words would be worship to you. And would you just send your spirit and glorify yourself in our hearts. We just say as we've been singing, we love you so much. With all our hearts, we love you. We give you everything. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about something really specific that's swirling under the surface of this uh, incredible reading. Actually, two remarkable encounters Jesus has. Like, they should make us sort of like slap us around the face and sort of wake us up because they're extraordinary. We've got a guy, a centurion, Centurion being someone in charge of a hundred soldiers, a powerful man who clearly is wealthy. He's got the resources to build a synagogue for the Jews in his town. So he's not only got resources, he's also got influence. But he's also quite an amazing person because he's clearly kind. Because it's the Jewish elders who come to Jesus and say, this is, this is a good man. This is a kind man because he's built us a synagogue. Do what he requests. He's also clearly someone who is good to serve under because he's got a passion for his servant. And he has clearly, he, he's ex, an extraordinary man. We'll come back to him in, in just a moment. Uh, but it's an unbelievable healing because Jesus literally does nothing. This guy sends his messengers to Jesus 
and he doesn't do anything. <laughs> um, Jesus basically is amazed at the centurion. So let's just notice this. A Gentile, someone who hasn't been trained in, in the synagogue, someone who hasn't been sent like Jewish boys were to learn the law, learn the Torah, learn the scriptures. Uh, he's a Gentile, presumably without knowledge of the Hebrew God, and yet he just totally gets who Jesus is, and Jesus is amazed at him. And he says, I've not found anyone in Israel like this guy. And that's it. <laughs> but the servant's healed. Jesus doesn't even speak a word as he's been requested. Then Jesus goes to Nain, and we have this moving account of a woman with one son. And let's remember that women could not be provided for in that culture without the men working and serving. So not only is she losing her only son, she's also losing all her security and all her possibility of being provided for. And they're literally carrying him out of the town. You know, occasionally we walk through the streets of Ashington if someone's died to a funeral and there'll be a procession. So just let's put ourselves into this story for how extraordinary it is. They're literally, they, these guys have done the funeral. They're walking with the funeral beer out of the town. Everybody's coming with them, a large crowd. Presumably everybody's absolutely devastated, not for the loss simply of the young man, but because of what it means for this, this poor widow. And we would sort of pastorally care, wouldn't we? We'd make sure there was a meal rotor for the widow. We'd make sure there were tissues for those who were crying. We'd sort of, you know, gently and sensitively stay at the back, wouldn't we? And just be the church. We'd keep the church open for private prayer and all those things, wouldn't we? <laughs> well, Jesus does something absolutely astounding in any culture, in any time. Jesus marches up to the crowd. He then touches the funeral beer, making himself ritually unclean. They stop. Not only is this, you know, not done, but it's also a moment of great drama. Can you imagine some weird guy just appearing in the village as the funeral procession is going and marching right up to the coffin? And Jesus, uh, you know, he's full of compassion uh, in this moment. And he says, do not weep. And he speaks to the young man, rise. And he does. And he starts to speak. And I'm not surprised that great fear sees them all. So this is just like incredible encounters Jesus is having. And you could take this in a lot of directions. But the direction that I want to just share with you this morning is swirling under both of these encounters. And it's also something that probably for three or four years, I've just been feeling like God is speaking about. And I want to share it in relation, not only because it fits, but also just to speak to you about something that I think the Spirit is doing in the church in the widest sense right now. It's rooted in this centurion. And it's no wonder Jesus says how amazing he is. Because there are three things that the centurion reacts to Jesus. The first is, the centurion says, 
He sends messages, uh, messages to Jesus. He, he doesn't even say, please come to my house, like Jairus did with his daughter. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. There's something going on in the centurion that is sort of placing Jesus in a, such a place of honor and respect that he won't even let him come to his residence. But nor even will he not have him come to his residence. He, he says, uh, I, I don't presume to come to you myself. What the centurion's not doing is sitting in his palace sort of saying, ya da da, I'll send my minions to go and just ask you to do something for me. No, no, no. The centurion is looking at Jesus and treating him with such honor. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Uh, verse 6, but nor did I presume to come to you. You know, he's treating Jesus with such honor that he, he wouldn't even dare come to Jesus himself. There's no presumption. There's no entitlement. There's no demand. There's no right to come to Jesus in the centurion. He, he, he's just, I don't even presume to come. So I'm just going to send people to, to, to ask you. And then he totally gets who Jesus is. Because he says, I too am a man under authority. I can say to this one, go. That one, come. I can say to my servant, do this, do that. And they do it. Because I know that they obey me. I get authority. What's he doing? He's saying, I get your authority. I understand who you are. So just say the word. Because he understands that Jesus is Lord over sickness. Jesus is Lord over the death of a widow's son. Jesus is Lord over the created order because he's God. That's what he's saying. So, Lord, if you will only say the word, my servant will be healed. He understands that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Over and above Israel, Israel don't understand. Because even after the, the raising of the widow's son, they think he's a prophet. Uh, you know, and you can see that, that you know, right through Luke's gospel, they're trying to work out who is this guy. He's overturning everything we know. He's subverting every assumption we have. Is he a prophet? Is he the son of man, but not like Daniel said? Is he, is he the son of God? I don't know. Is he a, who is he? And of course they would think he was a prophet because the raising of a widow's son is just what Elijah did. So they're, they're kind of, they kind of know Elijah's coming, you know, when, when the kingdom's going to be restored. They know Elijah's going to, is this Elijah? You know, because he went outside the nation and he, he healed the widow's son at Zarephath. But no, they don't even get it like the centurion does, who understands he's the Lord of all creation. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And... What happens is Jesus is amazed at him. There's no one like this guy with his understanding. He sees and he knows. And that's it. <laughs> and just that Jesus is astonishment at him, at the centurion's lack of presumption, his total honor, his recognition he's the Lord of creation. He's amazed. And something happens in that atmosphere that means that that 
very hour, the servant is restored. Now, I want to talk to you. Can we zoom out for just a moment? I want to talk to you about something the Lord's been um, speaking to me about, and I just want to offer it to you this morning. I want to zoom out and just share with you, well, let me ask you the question first. What do we think God is doing right now on the earth? What is God doing? Because what God is always interested in is illuminating himself. Is shining a spotlight on who he is. What's he doing on the earth? And I just want to zoom out and just share with you, just to the best of my prayers and just before my frame explodes, I just want to share with you just what, what, what God is doing. Um, or, or my sense, because I think it is what is coming. And I just want to share it with you so that we can be aware and alert. 500 years ago, the Lord showed the work of Jesus Christ. When I say work, I'm referring to the cross and the resurrection. But particularly the power of the cross And 500 years ago, Martin Luther had this revelation that the right and just wrath of God against sin and rebellion and all that is unholy and profane, the wrath of God has been satisfied through the cross of Jesus Christ. And Luther just came, he was like, we don't have to buy indulgences anymore. We don't have to do this. We don't have to pay in purgatory. It is salvation by faith alone in the work of Christ, in the blood of Jesus Christ, that comes and is transposed or placed on me simply by a faith stance towards God, by believing in Jesus Christ, that what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross becomes cover, a covering for me. And 500 years ago, it was the work of Jesus Christ that was highlighted by God as he began to show us that, not, you know, not all these works, but simply by faith alone, that we can be forgiven. And when Jesus paid for us, that was enough for all sins past, present and future, because it was a holy sacrifice offered in the right way by the Lamb of God that releases from us when we, when we take hold of this by faith, forgiveness for our sins. And that was sweet relief to Luther. And it's been sweet relief to the church to trust in the work of Christ. Then, at the start of the 20th century, the Pope at the time made a declaration. And he said the 20th century will be the year of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord answered that six years later in Los Angeles in Azusa Street, when a poor slave <laughs> began to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit hit them with power. And no one had really seen that before, or not in a corporate way, and they began to speak in tongues. They discovered the gifts. It gave them new power to preach the gospel, and the Pentecostal church went around the world. On our shores, the Lord answered the Pope's prayer in Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival. And the Holy Spirit has just burst through the 20th century. In the 60s, the new churches 
were wanting to kick on in this and left the established churches and started the new streams, the new, the new movements. All just discovering the gifts, the power, the authority that, that becomes ours when we come under the power of the Holy Spirit. In the sort of 80s, it was the evangelical established churches which were discovering this through Wimber. The gifts of the Holy Spirit restored to us so we can be like Jesus. And what's happening was God was highlighting and illuminating the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to add to the work of Christ. And then about 35 years ago, in various ways, the Lord began to shine a spotlight on the first person of the Trinity, on the fact that God is almighty and way beyond who we are. He's the creator of the world. He's almighty God, and yet he's an intimate father. And it should be no surprise that this revelation followed on from the Holy Spirit, because as Romans 8 says, those who are led by the Spirit are what? Children of God. They're children of God. And they cry, Abba, Father. And what we find is that suddenly how Jesus just referred to Father all the time. These are not my words. These are the words the Father gave me. I'm the beloved son that the Father loves. This far off Yahweh, almighty God, suddenly was just known as Abba. And suddenly we, we just have kind of like at the other end of the pendulum from, from the, the, the almightiness of God. We have the tender, loving Father who loves his children and cares for each one of us. And that, that's been going on for sort of 30 plus years or so. And we've caught some of that in this church. Now what I'm about to share with you builds precept on precept. So it's not like we scratch all that out. We're building on the work of Christ. We're building on the work of the Holy Spirit. We're building on the poured out love of God as he's highlighted the Father's heart. But my question is, what is God doing in the earth now? Now let's just take a look at where we're at in Western culture. We've done our level best to take God out of the equation and it's going very, very badly wrong. Now I'm not saying this in kind of condemnation of the world, I'm just saying these are the hallmarks of the culture we're in. It doesn't take a sociologist for us to know that we're living in the most entitled, proud, self-exalting generation that's ever lived. You know, I've said it many times before. <laughs> no one else projects their faces through a website, a personal website, for all the world to look at how wonderful they are. <laughs> this is the culture, and it has to, because we're made to worship. If you try and do a, a whole society without God at the center, we have to worship ourselves, or nature, or something. It's just how we're wired. You know, 1 Timothy, th um, two, sorry, 2 Timothy 3 uh, describes, can I, just, I just feel like this is the culture we're living in. You must understand this, he's writing to Timothy. In the last days, distressing times will come. We're in the last days, can I just tell you that? You know, Acts 2, since then we've been in the last days because the Lord's been pouring out his spirit. <laughs> and that's what would happen in the last days. In the last days, distressing times will come. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. I mean, it's like the gospel in our culture is, is just like, get rich and you'll be happy. Have you, have, you, have you ever met really rich people? They are pierced with so many hassles. <laughs> yeah. 
Lovers of money, it's an absolute lie. Boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. We've lost that, haven't we? And yet, Paul says in the new covenant, if you honor your father and mother, you'll live long. Ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Isn't that what we're living in? And this is just the... What would God do right now? (laughs) I'm telling you, what he is doing in these days is he's shifting us from a spotlight on the work of Christ and he's shifting us into manifesting the beauty of Jesus Christ, the majesty of Jesus Christ. And I just give to you and submit this morning that he is glorifying Jesus in such a way that he's restoring our absolute love for him. Nothing else. For him. And at the same time, restoring the majesty of Christ. He's highlighting the absolute radiance of Jesus. Now let's just rewind 500 years. 500 years ago, we were recipients of the work of Christ. And think about this in a minute. We all need the work of Christ. But so often, when you realize you've been forgiven, it's basically relief and you're receiving a benefit. But the deeper reality is that beyond what we receive from the cross, whether it's forgiveness or healing or reconciliation with the Father, what we receive from the cross is a much less, lesser thing than it is to see the beauty of Jesus, just the radiance of the sun, the one who is full of light, like no light, (laughs) the one who is just absolute love on display, the one who is God amongst us. There's none like Jesus. None like Jesus. He's so pure. He's so kind. He's so holy. And he's filling us with a dazzling revelation for those who have ears to hear of the beauty of Christ that lifts us beyond just our our kind of selfish, thank you for what you can do for me. And exalts, uh, exalts Jesus to the highest place where all we can do is say, take the world, but give me Jesus. Take the world, take everything. Take the shirt off my back, take my promotion. If money gets in the way, sell it all. But give me Jesus. He's the pearl of great price. We, we talk about the kingdom and healing the sick and raising the dead. But at the center of the kingdom is a king. And he's the most lovely king. He's the most glorious king. And he is the one that the father's pointing to saying, look at him, look at him. And the, the beauty of Jesus' character is every time, everyone, every time the world and everyone and the angels and the demons submit to him at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That as he is lifted up, he points back to the father. And he says, to your glory, to your glory, to your glory. It's the beauty of Jesus that's being lifted up and his majesty. And there's two sides to this coin. And this is what God is doing right now. The first side of the coin is a restoration of our first love for Jesus. 
And even now, I hope I'm stirring your hearts. This is, the, this is what happens when, when you fast. <laughs> I don't know what your process is like, but like my first bit, it just, it just feels awful. <laughs> and all my, all my fleshly appetites rise to the surface. And I'm, and I'm faced... I'm faced with my rebellion because I realize actually how much I enjoy this, this lesser created earthly thing, how much I enjoy that, and I'm faced with that. But now, as, as you push through that and crucify the flesh, he raises us. And now I'm like, I'm not hungry for anything other than you, Lord, because every other thing's a lesser thing to you. Every other thing is lesser than you. And I just want to drink from the water of life and eat the bread of life. And what are those things? They're him. <laughs> he is them. And, and we're brought to this place of saying, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Ah, oh, and as David responds, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day with you. That's how good you are. Just give me one day where I'm utterly consumed by your glory and seeing you face to face. I just want to see you. So the first side of the coin is a restoration of first love. Where we love Jesus for who he is. Not when he comes through for us. Not when he does stuff for us. Not, not this or that. Not for his benefits. They are incredible, but that's, God doesn't want us to stay there. Like He brings us in through the work of Christ because at the start we're babies and we're just still selfish. Like Children are selfish, right? You know, they're needy. Like when You have a baby and they're just demanding and you just have to focus on them. So the work of Christ, yep, yep, you're forgiven, well done. You, and now have some healing, now be reconciled to the Father, da, 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 da. all of that, all, all of those things, so that we can come into maturity which is like, I don't know, lock me up in prison. Take the shirt off my back. I don't care. But you cannot steal from me, Jesus. You cannot steal from me. And he's my prize. He's my portion. He's the strength of my heart. You cannot steal him from me. So take everything else. So like Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the, the other side of the coin is the majesty of Jesus when he reigns in our lives. And that is rooted in something which is coming to the church for those who have ears to hear. And we have a window. I think the nation has a window to respond to this through our proclamation. Because it is coming. And it's the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. Look at the centurion. Lord, I'm not worthy to come under my roof. He's not focused on himself. This isn't about bad self-esteem. This isn't about feeling like a miserable sinner. He's like, Lord, you are so mighty. You are exalted. I don't even, I don't even know how I could host you. I'm not, I, who am I for you to come under my roof? How can I draw near to you? You know, this is... It's the rightful elevation of God. And it's coming to the church for those with ears to hear. Now the fear of the Lord, what is that? 
It seems important because it's all over the Old Testament. Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Job 4, verse 6. Is not your fear of God your confidence? Psalm 128, verse 4. Thus shall the man be blessed and woman, I just want to add. Thus shall the person be blessed who fears the Lord. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord is life indeed. Filled with it, one rests secure and suffers no harm. Isaiah 33, verse 6, God will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. It's the treasure of God's people, the fear of the Lord. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord, firstly, is the rightful recognition that Jesus is king, not me. It's the rightful installment back in our lives that he is Lord and king. Secondly, it's the recognition of our utter dependency on him. And this has to be said to Western people, and it has to be said to clever, intelligent people. We don't bear any fruit in the kingdom unless we abide in him and depend utterly on who he is. Thirdly, it's the recognition that because he reigns, he wants to reign in the world. And so it's a recognition of his presence through his royal reign at all times. And the fourth thing, what that does is it creates, when we do that, when we put him in his place, it creates an atmosphere for the reign of God. This is, this is why the centurion servant gets healed without Jesus doing anything. He just recognizes Jesus. You can say, was it his faith? I don't know. Jesus is just like, wow, I've never met anyone like you. Then he goes somewhere else. <laughs> but what it does is it creates an atmosphere for Jesus to reign. That's the kingdom coming. Where the king at the center of the king begins to execute his royal reign amongst us. He's allowed because he's got this highway from heaven to earth flowing out of us, and it creates an atmosphere all around us. Now, the fear of the Lord is not used much in the New Testament, but it is used in Colossians 3, and you can read that later. And it's highly important for living Christianity out at work, so you can do some homework on that, Colossians 3. But think about, the, think about the early church. Think about what it was like for a moment. There's that intense story about Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember it? And everybody's at one at this moment. And what happens is Ananias and Sapphira sort of unfortunately haven't really got this. And, you know, they want to sort of buffer up their halos. And, you know, they're, they're big givers in the church. And, you know, they paid for, you know, a lot of things, bought a new organ, you know, provided for a youth worker and all those things. And, and so everybody's just providing for people in need. And they pretend that they've given more than they have. But there's such an atmosphere of undivided hearts, non-dualistic living. Peter spots it straight away and confronts Ananias. How dare you? And we don't know, was it Peter's words 
Was it God? Or did Ananias just face with his own duality, just sort of perish there and then? But he, but he dies. In that atmosphere, he dies. His wife hasn't got the text message. Uh, she arrives, and an unholy alliance, they're both deceitful. She, tr- she tries it again. Well, you know, we're, the, we're the, some of the best givers in the church here. And, you know, and, and Peter again, how dare you? They're carrying out the feet of your husband even now. And she falls down and dies. And it says, great fear seized the people. Great fear, Acts 5, verse 11. Do you know the word used there? It's the same word used in Acts 2, 43. What does Acts 2, 43 say? Acts 2, 42 says, after 3,000 people come to Jesus, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. Great awe was upon them. A-W-E. Great awe was upon them. Welcome back, guys. We're just going to stay super quiet just for a minute. Great awe was upon them all. It's the same word used as great fear. It's the word phobos in the original language from which we derive phobia. And guess what? When Jesus raises the widow's son and great fear seizes them all and they think a mighty prophet uh, uh, appeared, guess what word is used there? Phobos, awe. It's the rightful recognition. Oh my goodness, God's here. He's doing stuff. He's in this place. And awe fills them all with the rightful recognition that Jesus is here. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the, it's the rightful recognition that King Jesus is amongst us. Is there anything more off-putting that you've ever seen than someone dishonoring their parents? There are obviously worse things in life, but if you see someone, it could be a grown adult, just bad-mouthing their parents, it's a horrible thing, isn't it? God is releasing such an awe in his church, such a fear of the Lord, that we would just almost be so conscious of his presence. We don't want to grieve it. We don't want to quench it. We don't want to sin against it. We don't want to do anything else. It's just him. It's Jesus. It's the other side of the coin to first love. And in that context, Jesus Christ is utterly manifested and exalted on high. That's what the early church felt like. It wasn't, I don't know, they just rid themselves of their earthiness, their flesh, their arrogance, their pride. They'd rid themselves so that Jesus could be amongst them. And that's what was coming on the church. doesn't mean we have to be like somber all the time. There can be great joy. But it's the rightful recognition of who he is and who we are as his royal subjects. And you see, when we live like that, then we're not afraid of people anymore because we're more afraid of him, more afraid of causing grief to his heart than we are disrupting funeral settings. Well, let's just make it more practical. Just talking to someone about Jesus. That's why we don't do this because we're afraid of what will happen to us or what they'll say. Because we're not overshadowed 
by the fear of the Lord and the awe at who he is. And I think that's about as far as I can go today. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. Amen.